Welcome. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13, Medical SLP Collective, and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Jennifer Vroom receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation. She is the owner of Evoke Meditation and receives compensation for products and services. She is an independent contractor and receives a fee for services. Jennifer is a member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association. We are so excited about our episode today, Keys to Mindfulness and Meditation for SLPs. I am honored to welcome our guest, Jennifer Vroom. After graduating with her MS in Speech Pathology from UNC Chapel Hill in 2000, Jennifer has been working full-time as an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist for the past 21 years. She has experience in a wide range of settings, including hospitals, home health, schools, skilled nursing facilities, and private practice clinics. Jennifer has worked across the continuum of care. She has worked extensively with clients on the autism spectrum throughout her career. Jennifer created a company called Vroom Speech Therapy, which specialized in corporate accent modification and public speaking skills, providing services for clients both across the U.S. and internationally. For the past six years, Jennifer has worked full-time providing telespeech therapy for schools across the country. She is the founder of Evoke Meditation, an online platform where she offers a variety of services and products for individuals who want to learn meditation. She loves being able to implement strategies from her mindfulness and meditation practice into her therapy sessions with clients. Welcome back, Jennifer. I know that you've had two other courses with SpeechTherapyPD.com, one on teletherapy and one for self-care for the SLP. Today, we are here to talk about keys to mindfulness and meditation for SLPs. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to further the conversation from the last course that we did talk about those self-care strategies, mindfulness and meditation. So this is a next wonderful conversation to have on this topic. Well, we are so happy to have you and such an important topic in our world today. So first, can you tell us, because this is something we hear these terms thrown out all the time, every day, and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to distinguish one from the other. So can you tell us the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Yes, yes. I think that's a great place to start. And I completely agree. There is a lot of confusion out there and misinformation, really on what these two terms mean, what they involve, and they're often used interchangeably by people. The term mindfulness, it really has evolved into something different than its originated form. It's now used as a broad term, just describing a quality of being that we have as a result of meditating. But mindfulness actually is a type of meditation. In fact, it originated as a monastic meditative practice is stemming from Theravada Buddhism, actually. So it involves techniques that were meant to internally steady or stabilize your mind. And what you're doing is you're observing and bringing awareness out of what we say, like past worries, past thoughts, and feelings and emotions, future worries, and back into what's happening right here and now, the present moment. So, you know, instead of thinking about maybe the argument you had with your partner the other day or worrying about an upcoming presentation you have, what can we do to bring ourselves right here and now? Oftentimes it's the breath. And so you'll find that that's one popular technique that is very effective. I am breathing in right now and I'm breathing out. So that's a great mindfulness technique we use to bring ourselves back here to the present moment. But these techniques, they basically, they were studied and brought back from Eastern culture into our Western modern day society. And they were really whittled down to a secular format. So non-religious. So that way they could be more widely accepted and used because who needs it more than us here in our modern society, you know, even though they were, as I said, made for a monastic practice by monks <laughs> who have, you know, a lot of control over their surroundings, we need it, I think, more than anybody in this busy, crazy world we live in. So that's what mindfulness is. It's really, you know, on the handout I included too, I wanted to make sure we talk about it's a waking state practice. 
Not only can you do mindfulness techniques in what I call a formal meditation sitting, right? When you think about someone with their eyes closed or eyes mostly closed, seated usually upright, or sometimes you can be laying down, but either way, I call that a formal practice. Mindfulness can also be done outside of meditation sessions too. So throughout your day. And a lot of times that's what people refer to. They're thinking of that as meditation. It's not really meditation, but that it's definitely mindfulness. It's that quality of mind you're bringing to your everyday actions. And this is something that when we get into therapy sessions, how we can use this and how we can be more mindful using that term in our day, you know, it could be when you're cooking, when you're eating mindfully, even a walking, what they call walking meditations. It's really being mindful about your surroundings. Well, and it is a challenge today with so many distractions. We have our cell phone, we have our computer, we have our physical surroundings, we have our social media. There are a lot of distractions. So that reminder of mindfulness for our quality of mind every day throughout our day is so helpful. So I'm so happy that you're here to share that with us. And thank you for the clarification. So there are different types of meditation, but there can be a mindfulness meditation. Correct. And meditation, as you said, there's so many different types out there. And that's one factor we'll even mention again later. And that is it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario. And so sometimes people try one, sort of like a therapy technique or even going to a doctor. You might try one and find, well, I don't like it. This isn't for me. But actually, there are many types and there's really something for everybody. But when I think of meditation, the way that I refer to it and really the way that most teachers refer to it is that formal kind of seated practice. Again, you can be laying down. I just call it seated because that's, I usually recommend being seated upright so you don't fall asleep as often. But meditation <laughs> goes much deeper because it happens. That's very common. It's happened to me too. And sometimes you just need sleep. But with meditation, what you're actually doing is you're going deeper, is what I say, because you actually can hit what we call a fourth level of consciousness. So we're going deep in our conversation now, but you know, outside of your waking state, outside of sleep or dream state, there's another level of consciousness that they've described that we basically can reach during certain types of meditations, a lot of times mantra-based, transcendental meditation, for example. And in meditation, it's really meant, especially in those types that I just mentioned, to be a more passive type of activity. You're still aware but you're de-exciting your nervous system and you're giving your body actually a much deeper state of rest. I believe it's two to five times more than in sleep, in fact. Oh, really? And that, it, really interesting. And that in turn allows your body to heal itself better and to actually release what we call stored stresses. It's like if you think of your mind and your body like a computer, and often I do, <laughs> you're basically clearing the clutter or clearing the cache. I don't know how many of you, now that we all do tele-speech therapy to some certain extent, I think we're all familiar with more computer terms, but it's like clearing the cache of all these stored things that we had filed that are taking up space and making it harder for us to process effectively. So these are the benefits of using things like mindfulness techniques, mindfulness in meditation, or just meditation in general. I love that analogy, clearing the cache. That really resonates. So thank you for that. Okay. So speaking of resonating, how is this all relevant to us as <laughs> SLPs? Sure. Yeah. Very good question. First of all, I would say, you know, when you start, well, and we will talk about some of the research and the ways that we are changing our brain. We're changing the chemistry of our bodies. We're changing our emotional state. And why is it relevant? We all, I think, well, especially with COVID, we've all just, we've had to deal with enormous social anxiety, an epidemic, which is beyond COVID itself. The real epidemic, I feel like, is actually the increase in anxiety and depression, social isolation, and all of these mental health issues that have come about through COVID. But also, as you mentioned before, my goodness, technology is fantastic for some things. On the other hand, it's also 
isolating us further from one another, I feel like, socially. I've seen that in my students, and I, I can see that just in the people around me, too. Also, it is actually making it much more difficult for us to attend and to focus and to be present when we are socializing with other people or in any task, actually, even in work. So, you know, again, COVID is one of those things that really brought it to light and it amplified all of these issues for us, though, especially just with the worldwide mandate to socially isolate ourselves. And across the past year and a half, so not just in a short time period, but the real issue, and this is what I'd like to talk about too, how is this relevant to us? I think it's relevant to all humans. <laughs> I think if there's benefit to meditation and mindfulness techniques to help in those areas I mentioned with our mental health, with our physical health, social connection and communication, reducing anxiety, then I think it's something that everyone who's living and breathing probably should know about at least and maybe try. It really affects everybody. Absolutely. And in this podcast, we're focusing across the lifespan. And you can see how this has affected the stress of COVID has affected children, of course, some more than others, and it's all individual. But children, teenagers, especially college students, adults, geriatrics, across the board, we can see that the stress that COVID has caused for so many people. And although we are on the I hesitate, we're still in COVID, but we have a lot of the mandates have been lifted. So we're on a different side of it now. I think we still have that stress. And knowing that we can go back to those mandates at any time, I think that's a stress that is also present. Absolutely. There's that, the fear and worry, so many things that we've had to think about and worry about and still are with all the lingering effects. And again, as you said, we're not completely out of it either. It's improving and I'm very hopeful, but we're still having to deal with all these feelings of worry about just COVID itself, the medical condition and how it affects us um, and our physical health and our friends and family coworkers being isolated, not having that social connection that we did before that we were used to, stress over job loss, income, you know, with our kids having to be at home, our students having to just readjust our whole lives, lack of childcare, and then just that uncertainty about the future. There's a lot of stress that we've been going under for a long time period now, and it's not over yet. It's going to be extended. And I have noticed for sure a negative impact on my clients and families. We've all felt a personal impact as well. But I've noticed even a regression in that past school year of some students that had been doing really well the year before. And then what I noticed is a lot of struggle. They were already working on improved social interactions. But now that they're at home and have even less social interaction with peers or face-to-face, and really they were limited to just basically their family members, their intimate family members, I was noticing some regression, unfortunately, with some of their skills. Also increased anxiety, reports of depression, feelings Mm -hmm. of depression, and difficulty with focus and attention during sessions. And then, of course, there's just in the world increased reports of substance abuse and mental health issues for all different ages, as you've said. And so I would like to also talk about how stress affects us across time. Our bodies, as we've talked about, are hardwired to deal with stress, but it's usually the immediate stress. That was the old survival mechanism that we were designed to deal with. So that fight or flight mode that our bodies go into. However, once that perceived threat has passed, everything's supposed to go back to baseline levels, Mm -hmm. right? Our hormone levels drop, lowering of the heart rate, the adrenaline, cortisol levels drop, everything goes back to normal. And unfortunately, what happens a lot in this modern day time we live in and across this exposure, for example, with the time of COVID, the time we're living in now and across the past year and a half, we're experiencing ongoing long-term activation of this stress response. So we have this overexposure to these high levels. And then again, our overall body functioning and processing is now overtaxed. And so we're just not functioning 
as well as we could if we weren't, again, having this long-term activation process. It's a disruption of our system. And I wanted to point out some important information cited by the World Health Organization, actually, most medical conditions um, are either caused or exacerbated by stress. They have said that stress is the number one health threat in the U.S. You know, stress is a real pandemic. The American Stress Institute, they reported that as high as 70 to 90 percent of doctor visits are due to stress-related issues. That's huge. 70 to 90 percent. That's incredible. It's incredible. And I don't think we're aware of it. Whenever I hear somebody saying, oh, this happened, it's like, I know the underlying cause is probably stress. And I know for me, that's been the case too, where stress eventually what happens is it creates a breakdown. It creates numerous health issues. They could include things like anxiety, depression, heart disease, memory impairment, sleep issues, even digestive issues, so many things. So it's just, it's a really important issue that we need to address and figure out ways to better handle and deal with in our lives. The Mayo Clinic further states that it's important to learn healthy ways to cope with your life stressors. And guess what? One of their suggestions is learning to meditate. (laughs) So I love it. (laughs) Um, They say practicing relaxation techniques, including maybe yoga, practicing deep breathing. They say even getting a massage, which I love that suggestion and, and try to practice, but also learning to meditate. And this is the Mayo Clinic. So I just love that, you know, they're even showing that this is one effective strategy for learning to relax more, learning to deal with these everyday stressors, especially those that are occurring across a long-term period of time. We just, we live in a busy, hectic, chaotic, stressful environment, and we just need to become better equipped at how we can handle all of these demands. And if we do not learn to replenish our reserves, we will become depleted. And again, what happens? Well, then breakdown starts to happen. We might feel overwhelmed, stressed out, unhappy, but eventually it can lead to physical manifestations. And that is something we don't want. So, you know, just, I want to point out to our listeners that there is this connection between our mental health and our physical health. And meditation and mindfulness are ways that we can deal with that in effective ways. Well, thank you. So what are some practical ideas for bringing mindfulness and meditation into our everyday lives, including our work as therapists? Sure. I love this. I love practical. (laughs) That's what I always want when I'm listening to teachers as well. I want to hear practical everyday ways that we can actually utilize these skills in our lives. Well, in our personal life, I think it's so important that we become, as I said before, that term, becoming more present. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we've all experienced those conversations where someone's on their cell phone. Maybe it's even you <laughs> or me. Guilty. Somebody Guilty on their charge. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I Trying tell my to kid, do what we <laughs> and they say, "Well, look at you." I'm like, "Yeah, you're right. Just do as I say, not as I do." <laughs> and then I put it down. <laughs> exactly. So, how can we become more engaged? in our life? How can we become more present for the people that we care about in the workplace, be more efficient, right? So when we're actually engaged and focused on whatever it is we're doing, we can be much more efficient in our day too. Um, So that goes into the work life. But when we use these kinds of techniques, I can guarantee your relationships and your connection, your social connections are going to improve. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a little bit. But when two people are both feeling more connected and loved and appreciated, and there's a process that we will go over, which is gratitude. That's one practical way. It's really a mindful practice you can use to help your personal relationships, but also your work relationships when we're more present and mindful. I'm using that term in a different way, but it's being mindful for that other person. And so also, you know, it's the intent to release assumptions, thoughts, feelings that we might have about an interaction based on the past or based on what we're thinking that and assuming 
about that other person. And it's taking that part out of it and bringing us into that present moment. So in our personal lives, for sure, this can benefit us and in our professional life as well, in our work relationships. And then, of course, I want to talk about therapy, how we can start to incorporate that into our therapy sessions, too. As a way to get into that, to talking about some practical ways that I actually use it in therapy sessions, I wanted to say, you know, we have to prepare ourselves, plan in advance before we even go into our session. So first of all, in my day, I meditate first thing. And the reason is just as I plan and prep all my therapy activities and do my due diligence and read the past soap notes to see, okay, what, what do we need to go with our session? I also prepare myself in advance mentally. So that's why I do my meditation every morning first thing. I do it before brushing my teeth, before I eat, before I talk to anyone, if I can help it. Some days that doesn't happen, but I do it as early as I can, you know, purposefully waking myself up earlier to do that for a full recharge of myself, my mental state and reset myself for the day. So that way, when I go into my therapy sessions, my work day, even talking to my loved ones at home, I'm more focused and clear-minded. And I also find that my day flows much better. How long is that meditation in the morning? How much earlier do I have to wake up, Jennifer? (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you, I have been meditating. I'm a lifelong meditator at this point. I've been meditating since I was a teenager. So I have been meditating for over 25 years now. So at this point, it really depends on the day. For me, I always at least put 15 minutes in my morning. However, I mean, I've been meditating this long and still 15 minutes is really all you need. Now, for a beginning meditator, I would never say just jump right into 15 minutes. In fact, I teach starting with as little as five minutes. Okay, if you I have can, one minute, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Exactly. You don't need to just dive in and be expected to know what to do. In fact, I use guided meditations even for myself. I use, there's so many different ways you can meditate or use mindfulness techniques, but even now I still like to be guided too. I don't want to have to think about it or, so some days that feels really great to me too. So again, five minutes or less to start is all you'd have to do. And you could even lay in bed before you get out of bed. If I've had that before, because if I stir, you know, maybe my partner will wake up and then we have a conversation. So, and sometimes I'll just lay there quietly and do some mindfulness techniques in my mind before I get up and before I enter my day. So that's one just easy to start with technique for getting a start on your day. And can I ask you just to clarify when you say guided meditation Mm -hmm. versus meditation, what does guided mean? Good question. Yes. It just means that instead of me sitting with absolutely no audio, I am in my mind pulling out one of my tools or strategies I just know or have learned or have developed across time. And in my own mind, am guiding myself in my mind through a meditation or just sitting in quiet. There's, again, so many ways to do this. However, I would definitely recommend to listeners to start with guided meditations, which means you get to listen to an audio. You can just actually on your phone, on your computer, however you have it downloaded, you can listen to another teacher who's recorded something that will guide you through exactly what to do to follow your breath, to say the mantra, whatever it is, whatever strategy, but they will totally walk you through the whole meditation. And so that's a great way to get started. And it's not even just for beginners. Again, I love to do this myself now too. It's like going to a yoga class, even though I've gone through teacher training, I love being guided in yoga. Sometimes you just want someone else to lead you through and just be present for that and be fully engaged in it and be a learner again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. For sure. And, you know, there are definitely some other simple things you can do. In fact, well, I wanted to talk about also some of my students and how I use them in sessions. And in fact, let's go ahead and talk about that first. And then I'd like to go through after that, maybe some just positive, simple actions people can use in their everyday lives, whether in therapy or for themselves. You know, I have a couple of students that come to mind where I've definitely been implementing regular mindfulness techniques. 
one of those students is a student who has apraxia of speech and reduced intelligibility, which makes them very frustrated. So when I would have to ask him to repeat information, he would sometimes have a meltdown, an emotional meltdown, and have some inappropriate behavioral responses. And so I had to begin to teach him first how to identify where he was emotionally, right? We would do frequent check-ins. And then I taught him, okay, what are a few different calming strategies. So we call them calming strategies, but what are they? They're really mindfulness techniques. One of those was deep breathing. One was counting to 10. And what I would do is I would give teach him a few strategies so he could decide on a given day if he needed one, which one did he prefer to use? Which one did he feel like would be the best fit for him in that moment? And so he would identify and I'd help him because sometimes I had to identify for him and talk him through and guide him. And we did this across time. And then eventually he was able to use these with less cueing in order to calm himself. And why is that important? Because I couldn't get to work on the other strategies like the articulation, like the intelligibility aspects until he was able to focus and calm himself and participate. And so that's one prime example of where these mindfulness strategies, it's not just for someone who maybe has firmly an anxiety disorder or depression or these things that we might associate with that. It can be used for anybody. We all have those moments, by the way. So even myself before a therapy session, maybe I'm feeling a little stressed and overwhelmed or it's just it's a packed schedule and I need a moment. So I'll take my what I call mindful moment and do my own deep breathing too. same strategies. And by the way, it's beneficial when the student has to also use these strategies for me. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Woo. I mean, it's stressful for us as therapists dealing with that too, right? Absolutely. Without having that emotional response back yes. when they're having those responses, when they're rude to us, when they're showing behaviors, we need to calm ourselves too. And so we both get to do it together, oh, which I great. think is very helpful. Absolutely. Yes. So with that client who you were just discussing, the one with apraxia, and you had your calming methods, did you typically do this at the beginning of the session or did you wait until there was a moment where he needed it or she needed it? That's a great question. Initially, when I first started working with him this past school year, I didn't know yet that this would be an ongoing issue. When I noticed that it was happening regularly, then I immediately started teaching him the strategies with visuals, with my guidance. And then at the beginning of every session, we would do a check-in. In the middle of the session, we do another check-in before the next activity. And so, yes, again, it's especially with anything behavioral, as we all know, we want to get in front of the problem instead of waiting for it to happen. Sometimes you don't know until it's happened. And then you realize, oh, okay, this is something else we need to probably address in our therapy sessions or talk about as a team and figure out how as a team we can approach this. But for sure, I started using it then immediately. So it wasn't just to look at the negative of where we're feeling emotionally. A lot of times at the beginning of the session, he was feeling great. And I love that. So I said, oh, okay. So it looks like you're in a green zone right now. You're feeling calm and good. So do you think we need to use any calming strategy? No, we don't need it right now. We'll check in later and just see where we're at if something changes. And I always mention it, you know, there's no good or bad in that. There's no good or bad feeling. It's just, do we need to use those calming strategies to help us to get back to a calmer feeling place where we can refocus or not? I really like the term that you use as a check-in. So it's a neutral check-in point, just like we're coming to a stoplight. You know, there's no punishment for coming to a stoplight. You know, we just come to a stoplight and it allows us to check in. So it makes it a more neutral interaction. I like that. Absolutely. And with anybody, I feel like, you know, it's easy to judge ourselves and others when we get in those moments that are <laughs> less than ideal, maybe <laughs> not our best moment emotionally, but we're going to have those and that's natural and that's human. It's just, we don't want to stay in those places and we want to be able to better manage our responses when we have those heightened emotions. And so that's something we're teaching our students. 
But another example that's a little different is related to a student I have in high school. He has a diagnosis of autism. And for him, he's one of those, unfortunately, that I did notice some regression with social skills across this past year due to COVID, being at home 24-7 and trying to deal with that. And he already struggled with focus as well and executive functioning organization as well as the social pragmatic skills. And so he was really struggling to stay focused and we're working on conversation. So he's was constantly distracted. So at the beginning of our session, I worked with the counselor as well. So we both were implementing the same technique for using mindfulness meditation. We had actually closed our eyes for five minutes, maybe three to five minutes, and either do some deep breathing or simple techniques. And after he would always report that he felt more focused, he felt just good. He felt just better is how he would describe it. And He also, I love this comment he made, actually. He said, not only did he feel calmer and more focused, he said he wished the rest of his family could also learn these strategies because they could really benefit from the practice too. Oh, that's, wow, how insightful. That's great. He's so so insightful. He really is, but I love that. And he was saying, yeah, they could use the conversation practice as well as the (laughs) mindfulness meditation. And he's so right on because who amongst us wouldn't benefit from these. And so I just, I loved that. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, did you tell him to uh, teach them to the family? Yes, I did. And he really was trying to talk with his parents. And as a twin brother, he was trying to talk with them about some of the strategies. So I love that. And he, and you know, there was another learning opportunity as well to tell him, Unfortunately, we can't control what other people do too. Right. And right. so flexibility all we can piece. do, exactly. All we can do is figure out what we do have control over and what is that? It's us and how we respond. And mm-hmm. so we can just show up the best way we possibly can using the strategies we have. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for those examples. For sure. And you know, there's a term I included that you will see on your handout for all the listeners who are getting this once you review it. And this is a word called equanimity. And we're talking about our therapy sessions, how we can use these techniques with students, but also for ourselves. And there is a term called equanimity. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with, but this is something that you do develop when you use mindfulness and meditation techniques. And I love this term. I've been really contemplating it a lot lately because what it is, is your ability to maintain mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, even when faced with a difficult situation, which is just what we were talking about, mm-hmm. both for us as a therapist, just as a person in relationships and for our students as well that they're going to face, especially those who they have special needs and they're living in this environment where we're all going to face these kinds of difficult situations sometimes. And what's difficult for one person may not feel that way for another, but either way, we're all facing stressful situations. And how are we going to handle that? What is our response going to be? That's where these techniques really come in handy when we practice the skill of observing our thoughts and our emotions in a non-reactive way, which is what we're doing when we do mindfulness and meditation, then we're really developing this mental muscle is how I like to call it to improve problem solving abilities and capacity so we can more gracefully handle these challenging situations and better handle issues that might come up in any relationship in our everyday life. I mean, I think everything is relational. So I think it's a super important skill that we are developing and learning the sense of equanimity. Equanimity. Well, thank you for clarifying that as well. So is that, you said that's a kind of a new term within mindfulness or a new term that you're using or? It's a term that I've been just thinking about more lately, but it's not new to the arena of mindfulness or meditation. But I think it's a great term for us to start to think about even in our therapy sessions. We're teaching this really in a lot of aspects. But I like this term and it's a just a a nicely defined way to think about this skill Mm -hmm. that we all want to cultivate, that we all need and can use in our everyday lives. And I like how you said that, you know, in a non-reactive way, being proactive, thinking about equanimity. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything, we want to do all of this in advance. And that's why, again, why I meditate first thing in the morning rather than waiting till later in the day when now I'm already stressed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now this is a last ditch effort to get myself back on track. And you know what? We're all going to have those days too. No judgment on that. We're just going to, we, some days we have more stressors in our lives than others, but we can give ourselves the best start possible by planning in advance, just like we would do, again, in a therapy session with a student that we know maybe has a history of behavioral issues. Well, rather than waiting for it to happen, let's put some things into place, some strategies into place to give them the best possible success. Mm-hmm. And so we want to do the same thing for ourselves too. Right. As therapists, we're trying to set everyone else up for success. We need to think about our own self-care and setting us up for success. Absolutely. And, you know, some of those positive, just small positive actions is what I like to call it. These don't have to be anything intense. And so that's why I included just three simple things we can include. And I also use these in my therapy sessions. So outside of a formal sitting meditation practice, we can just do these three simple things. And you don't have to do all three every single day either, by the way. I'm just saying these are three easy to use techniques. And what they do is they just have positive neurological benefits, which in fact, after we talk about the three positive actions, maybe we could even talk about some of the positive neurological changes that that actually happen too. Yeah. On your handout, you'll see the first one is deep breathing. And you've heard me talk about this a few times. Well, a lot of us have been trained to already use this technique. If you think back to grad school, maybe, or even if you, I don't know if you learned it in undergrad school, I learned it in grad school, but diaphragmatic breathing, which I've been using ever since, or belly breathing. I mean, I even use it when I exercise, when you're doing yoga. And I know, Mary Beth, you also are going through yoga teacher training as well. And so I know you're using this a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I am. I'm about halfway through. Exactly halfway through. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So yes, we have been talking a lot about diaphragmatic breathing. So yes. Perfect. So good. In so many ways, it helps you release muscle tension, lowers your heart rate, lowers blood pressure. Of course, it increases oxygen. You're actually able to allow more oxygen into your body. And what does that help with? So many things. First of all, your cells need that oxygen to better perform. You have improved concentration and attention. So again, really good reason to use it with a lot of our clients too, this deep breathing to get them refocused onto whatever it is you're going to teach next. It triggers the relaxation response in your body through the vagus nerve. So this is a something I always use even today still, even if I'm standing in a line and I'm starting to get stressed out because I'm waiting too long, right. <laughs> I can use some deep breathing. The great thing about breathing techniques of all types and why I still today even though they're basic, I still teach them and use them myself. If I'm lying in bed, if I'm doing any activity, I'm doing deep breathing because you take your breath with you wherever you go. So you can actually use this anytime, anywhere. And again, it has just so many benefits for us. I use it with a number of patients too, across my career, all different ages. Of course, we've been trained to use it with voice clients, especially for individuals who stutter, but again, I, you can see I use it with my students with autism, apraxia of speech, anyone with an emotional behavioral issue, in addition to the communication aspects that we're specifically targeting. So, so many ways you can use this. And for those who have forgotten or maybe haven't used it in a while, a great way to teach it is just to put your hand on your belly. And as you take a breath in, you can feel your belly expand. And as you breathe out and let the air release your belly lowers. And that's the process. It's a very simple thing, but that also makes it very easy to teach. Students, even if they're young, can even see it and feel it firsthand. So it's a great thing to practice with them. Great way for calming. The great thing about the breathing techniques, we take those with us wherever we go, as long as we're here on this earth. It's always, (laughs) always an option. (laughs) Exactly. For sure. Yeah, my favorite methods are breathing methods, and I use it at the beginning of every meditation I do. Even when I do mantra meditations, I always start with breathing. I really enjoy those. And then another easy strategy that you can use, again, I personally use all of these, and I also use them with my 
clients in therapy sessions would be the counting method. And there's different ways you can use this, different ways you can tie it either to your breath or just counting alone. For the student I was talking about who has apraxia, so apraxia of speech. And so what we were doing was, as one of his strategies to calm himself, it's just slowly counting from one to 10. If your student has the capability to do it, they could even count backwards. He certainly could. He loves math. So he actually, next Mm -hmm. time, if I work with him again next year, that might be something we do just to vary it up. For myself, I even do that as a relaxation method before going to bed. If my mind is starting to wander or get busy, I'll slowly count backwards, say from 25 to one or 50 to one, or sometimes on some nights, a hundred to one, if I'm just in that place and I need to really quiet my mind. Um, You can also tie it to your breath. So at the beginning of some of my meditations, what I teach is a three to five count. Let's breathe in for a count of three, breathe out for a count of five. And you're not counting out loud, you're counting in your mind, but repeating that just simple controlled breath. And again, a lot of triggering of our body's relaxation response Mm -hmm. with these, but that's what you're doing with a longer exhale. When we breathe in, we're exciting our system more. When we breathe out, especially for a longer controlled breath, you're actually triggering that relaxation response. So that's key. That's another key technique you could use, again, personally and in your therapy sessions. And then a third, just simple action you could do is gratitude. We talked about that just a little bit earlier. We mentioned mm-hmm. this gratitude or appreciation, stating what you're thinking of, what you're thankful for, rather, or appreciative for. And that could even include an actual giving thanks to someone or allowing that for yourself, too, by the way. That's something we don't often do. We don't often allow other people to give us thanks or appreciation. And so making sure to allow that for ourselves as well and giving it to yourself, right? What are things that you can be thankful for about your yourself? I mean, what a practice that would be for all of us. We're so giving in our profession, in our personal lives, and start to show appreciation for yourself too, things that you could do that are kind for yourself. But in the gratitude practice that I'm talking about here specifically, maybe having a gratitude journal could be something you do. I love to journal. I've been journaling since I was a teenager and writing has such therapeutic benefits. It also helps with memory and processing, but it's just a safe way to process your thoughts and feelings. And here, if you write down or have students write down. I've done this in therapy sessions. This is great. I do all online now so we can type it out. But just that movement, that motion of either typing or writing and then stating aloud, what are maybe just three things you're thankful for right now? It could be that, well, today's not sunny out. So (laughs) there's still sunlight. There's still light. Otherwise it would be completely dark. So I'm appreciative the sun is out. I'm appreciative for, you know, an abundance of clean, healthy water and food that I have access to, you know, it could be as simple as that. So many for your loved ones. Yes, absolutely. And especially in this day and age where we're focused on so many negatives, I think it's so important to switch to the positive. Following up on that, we tend to be hard on ourselves. So instead of being hard on ourselves and thinking about what we didn't do or haven't done or could do, just be thankful for what we have done with the opportunities that have been given to us in this life that we live. So So true. Also back to what you had said earlier with our students, actually thanking them for specifically what they did during the session, whether it be that they just, you know, paid attention a little bit better or that you can really see that they're trying really hard. I think they really, a little bit of gratitude goes a long way. Absolutely. I love that. Yes. You know, some of the students that we see those behavioral issues with too, it's that negative reinforcement that a lot of times they become used to. And instead we can switch that to that positive reinforcement and then we'll probably see more of those positive behaviors as well. So that is a very important thing that you brought up. I love that. And when we're grateful or appreciative towards another person, I mean, we're always trying to build rapport. Well, you increase your connectedness with that person Mm -hmm. in that relationship, whoever that is, whether it's your student, just a loved one, even a work relationship, just a, you will definitely improve your interpersonal relationships 
So, you know, there's the neuroscience behind it too, I'll throw out there because I think that's, again, that fun part of it that is important to know. And when we express gratitude, we're also releasing dopamine and serotonin, which are those two important feel-good neurotransmitters that affect our emotions. Mm -hmm. And so it will enhance your mood too, right? So positively, immediately enhancing or improving your feeling, your mood. So I think that these are definitely just some simple, easy things that we can start to incorporate into our lives. So you mentioned two examples of where you used it. Have you used it with older? I know you were talking about a high school student. Have you used it mm-hmm. with older clients, adult clients, or high school students who are transitioning into adulthood, graduating? For sure. In fact, a lot of my high schoolers were in that process. And so we do use all of these techniques, for sure. It depends on the student. As you'll see on the list, on the handout as well, and this is an important point we'll make soon once again, and that is everything should be individualized. Just like I talk about with meditation, how there's so many different methods and there's something for everyone. Same thing, you know, as far as the the use of these mindfulness techniques. I don't think there is a person that couldn't benefit from these in some way, but depending on the need for that particular student. But yes, I have definitely used these with several students who are transitioning out of high school, ready to start their college career or whatever it is they're going to do. And a lot of them, because of their disabilities, had a bit of anxiety on that too. And so these were good techniques, especially as a lot of times, what are we training them for now? Well, we're working on really functional communication, right? What are you going to do when you go to college? Or if you have a job interview, let's work on some of these skills. And these not only help with your intelligibility, like breathing techniques, diaphragmatic breathing. It helps you to be more intelligible. It helps your voice to be more amplified. It also calms them at the same time. When we're faced with a stressful situation such as an interview or maybe a presentation, we use those a lot too before presentations. You mentioned earlier in the bio that I worked on public speaking skills. This is absolutely something that we would practice before any public speaking engagement. And when I was training other clients who are entrepreneurs, for example, so they're having to do a lot of interviews or a lot of public speaking events. And that can be, I mean, that is actually people's number one fear is not death. They say it is public speaking. Yes, yes, <laughs> so yes. We definitely need ways to charge again. <laughs> I can have a conversation <laughs> with you or one or two people, but put me in front of a room and yikes. So you're not alone there. (laughs) Yes. And so ways to calm ourselves and to relax ourselves so that we can perform better in those kinds of stressful situations. Well, these techniques can absolutely be used for so many different situations. And it's funny, we were talking about even other clients just the other day as I was on a hike thinking about use of mindfulness and meditation. I don't know if you've ever heard of spasmodic dysphonia, but it's a voice issue that happens and more psychological impact that's related to that and causing that. And that was a prime area where we were absolutely integrating mindfulness techniques, especially breathing. That was something to help that one particular client who came to mind just the other day. That was another example of how we could use it even in therapy. So not only for voice, but to reduce anxiety and make her better able to communicate. Oh, that's excellent. And that was an adult client you were talking about with this. That was an adult client. They're just, there's so many implications for how we can start to use these. Again, I just gave three ideas that we could start to implement now. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's really there, I'm really excited about the research we still need, of course, in the field to a greater extent, especially and specifically for speech pathology Mm -hmm. with our clients and communication. So many implications though, and so much encouraging information out there that people are starting to look at, including Parkinson's disease, you know, as one example of clients who are, some are using meditation and it's really benefiting them. So there's just, there's a lot of different ways that 
in the future, I think we're going to start to see how we can really start to use these strategies with a variety of clients. Again, we'll talk about you know something we need to consider, and that is more research is still needed in that area. But again, it's something I'm very excited to be a part of that conversation on and to see where it goes. And I don't know if you'd like to jump into this, but it makes my mind go straight into some of the neuroscience, which I know we haven't yet covered on, but you'll see on your handouts too for listeners, which is just understanding some of the beneficial changes that happen and why I'm even talking about some of these other types of clients that it may end up helping because we're changing brain chemistry here. You know, client, I've worked a lot with patients also with aphasia, and I'm really excited to see some of the potential of where this could go for those clients as well. Yeah, it is exciting to see that research and talk about how it does change brain chemistry, which adds to our Mm -hmm. evidence-based practice and shows that these are effective methods to use and within our scope of practice to use them within the therapy sessions. So can you dive into the neurological effects? Absolutely. There are really, there are many positive Ways that our brain we're looking at now in research, and they're showing that these are ways that our brain changes across time with consistent practice. That is key, right? Consistent practice. Although some studies are showing a shorter time period too. And that again is where we need more variety of research to document across time. But what studies on mindfulness meditation have shown They have indicated that consistent practice is linked to things like decreased cell volume of your amygdala, and that's the center for that fear, anxiety, stress. And what does decreased volume of that mean? Well, that's when we can then trigger that relaxation response, right? Go the opposite way Mm -hmm. of that increased fear and anxiety, reducing those in our lives. Increased cortical thickness of the hippocampus. This is the area of our brain that houses tools for learning and for memory. Well, that's very important for all of us, but especially our students, our clients. Additionally, the hippocampus houses emotional regulators that are associated with self-awareness and empathy. You know, we're teaching social skills to a lot of our clients, perspective taking. I work on that a whole lot. And these are very important for developing that type of skill for overall social skills and developing social connections and social interactions with other people. Um, The fight or flight response is quieted, as we talked about. When we decrease the cell volume of the amygdala or we, we stop that fight or flight process, then we can activate the opposite, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, the PNS. And that basically elicits the relaxation response of our body. Again, we don't want this long-term activation of our stress response. It's important to have an activation of the stress response when appropriate. It's just we tend to have an overactive stress response and it's prolonged. Mm -hmm. We tend to get caught up in reactivating even when we're just thinking about past experiences, right? A past Um, unpleasant conversation or a fight or whatever it was we had, we keep reactivating that in our mind or that future worry that we keep um, thinking of. We've got that hamster wheel happening in our mind. And that leads again, as we talked about earlier, to a lot of negative consequences Mm health-wise. And then another neuroscience fact I wanted to include here with the research that's been out is that the cortical thickening of gray matter in our prefrontal cortex, in our parietal lobes, has been linked to that consistent practice of mindfulness meditation techniques. And so that's where we house our attention, executive functioning, which I've been working on a lot with clients recently, problem solving, and emotional regulation. So, I mean, we can see that there are just so many ways that we can, there's so many positive implications for using these kinds of techniques. And basically what we want to do is better understand how our brain works, how we can change it and take more control over our body and mind through the use of these kinds of strategies. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. You know, something I keep coming back to is when you're really, really stressed out, like think of a situation that just totally stressed you out and you kind of went through that arc of being really stressed and then you were calm. Think of how 
an hour later or even the next day, how tired you can be. And then think about when we're constantly putting ourselves in that stressful situation, think about how it affects our fatigue and our general state of being. So using these methods to stop that constant stress is so important to our overall health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, we need to replenish ourselves. Like you said, it really taxes our system. Mentally, we become more taxed than even if we were physically doing something, I feel like. I always feel like more tired at the end of a day where I was thinking really hard or working on something or had back-to-back sessions all day mm-hmm. than say if I went and ran <laughs> um, a few miles. You know, I, I feel much more tired. It's very stressful on our bodies. And again, we need ways. We need practical strategies that can help us to relax, basically. Relax that process. Give ourselves that break. Just like, again, going back to the analogy of our computer. You can't leave your computer on 24-7 without letting it have a break. It has to go to sleep at the end of the day, too. Otherwise, what happens? It's probably not going to work very well for you. And same thing happens with your mind and body. There's a connection there that we need to be aware of. Clear that cash, as you said earlier. Yes. Yes, (laughs) Um, for sure. Now, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but before we go, I would like to see if we could touch on some considerations that we need to be aware of when deciding whether or not to introduce mindfulness and meditation into our sessions. And if you could touch on scope of practice a little bit too. For sure. Thank you so much. Yes, very important. As we're talking about, these are great, wonderful strategies and we want to start using them. We do also need to be cautious of how we're implementing them and when to use them. So, and then just some other just key points I want to make on that. The first one is that as wonderful as these techniques are, they're not meant to be a substitute for professional care, for therapy, for treatment. They are wonderfully effective and they can be a great supplement, but I don't Mm -hmm. want to suggest that at this time and where they're at, that they are a substitute. Maybe at some point in the future, I don't know, you know, who knows what will, what research will show later with more effective studies. But at this point in time, we just want to make sure we're not substituting. Okay. Okay. A second thing I want to talk about, as we all know, but I'm just going to say it anyways, is use a team approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, and we always want to do that with all of our clients. So if we're using it in a therapy session, we just want to make sure we're working with other team members too, before we incorporate strategies. We want to make sure everyone's on board with it. Um, just in case if somebody has any concerns over that, if a client has an anxiety disorder, for example, It'd be very prudent to consult a doctor, psychologist, or their counselor first and see also what are their suggestions. If a client is seeing an occupational therapist, Mm -hmm. in fact, so I've worked with both of these. With the clients that I mentioned, they each were working with multiple therapists. And so I always consulted with them and we would exchange activities that each one of us could implement. And those included the mindfulness and meditation techniques, as well as anything that would help with behaviors or emotional regulation. And so with an occupational therapist also, maybe they have some sensory processing or regulation issues. And you want to consider that too, before putting any of these into place. Mm -hmm. These are pretty generic, especially the breathing. You know, that's why I always suggest breathing is a great one to start with. You really aren't going to hurt anyone with breathing (laughs) strategies. It can only help really. But at the same time, it's just best practice always to talk about your team members with what you're working with what you're using and what's working or if they have any other practical strategies that they suggest as well. Also, something that we have seen in some research is that meditation for some can aggravate trauma. So we're working with a variety of clients who come to us with all kinds of histories. And so if you know of a client who has a history of trauma, abuse, some kind of mental disorder, well, then some methods of meditation have been reported to aggravate those symptoms of emotional distress, and we need to be aware of that. So, as I said, there's no one-size-fits-all scenario because research also has shown that mindfulness training can be very beneficial to those, even those mm-hmm. with PTSD. It's just 
if you yourself are not trained to deal with that potential, then don't implement it, right? We just always want to err on the side of caution. So that is my suggestion to you. In cases like this, just refrain from using any type of implementation that you think there's that possibility that it could aggravate symptoms. So that I would just make a referral or just stick to what you're doing. And then, and of course, again, go back to that team-based approach Mm -hmm. and then see if they do have someone else working on these with them and they're working for them, any of these strategies, and they suggest that now you can implement these, then go ahead and do so. The team approach is so important for us to not reinvent the wheel. If we already have a member on the team who's using some of these strategies, well, let's get together and and use them together and not, you know, start a new one or do something that has already been tried. So, so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that really segues into the next point I wanted to make too, which is personal experience is super important too. Just like if I were to go see any teacher, if they themselves weren't practicing or had experience in whatever it is they're teaching, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't go to that teacher. And same, just like if we, you know, as SLPs, some of us as speech therapists, some have more experience working with certain types of clients. If you don't have experience working with AAC, augmentative communication, you probably shouldn't be working on that with a client without getting some extra support. So refer out as needed. And also when it comes to the meditation and mindfulness, I would suggest using the techniques yourself. They're pretty simple to get started, but before you start teaching it, just practice using some of them. It doesn't take long and start with the basic breathing exercises. That's an easy way to do that, that you can actually implement with pretty much anyone of any age Mm -hmm. and the counting method too, as long as they can count. Right, right. (laughs) Good practice for them too. (laughs) All right. And one final thing I wanted to touch on is scope of practice, of course, which is very important to us as we have this conversation. I think that it is fantastic for us to consider evidence-based practice. We have to do that in our field. However, there is validity in using techniques such as mindfulness and meditation when we're seeing our students improve in their engagement, in their rapport with us, in their ability to focus, right? Using these informal strategies, basically, for better engagement in our sessions is going to help them better understand, use, and carry over all of these traditional therapy techniques that we're implementing in our sessions. And that's going to improve their communication skills and their social functioning. For students that I've incorporated these techniques, as I've talked about, I've witnessed in a short time how they're able to calm down, better manage or regulate their emotional responses, improve behaviors, improve attention and focus. And that in turn improves memory skills so they can carry over all of these skills and generalize them. At the end of the day, we want our clients and ourselves to not only perform better, but to feel better, to feel more confident and connected in relationships into the world around us. Mm -hmm. So I think that is part of our goal. Absolutely. Jennifer, thank you so much for your list of references and that handout, which is available from speechtherapypd.com. I know people who are listening through other means will not see the handout or the references, but if you would like to see those, you can get those at speechtherapypd.com through podcasts. And can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the references that you mentioned, as well as any other resources that are available to people who want to get started in a mindfulness and meditation practice? Sure. We're so lucky today. There's so many avenues for anyone who wants to get started simply. Uh, There are apps out there. I'm on one called Insight Timer, for example. So you can actually, if you are already on that, you can get some of my meditations there. You can also go to my website, evokemeditation.com, if you want to learn more about what I have to offer as far as my online courses. They're really designed for from beginner to more experienced meditators. And I have meditations that are guided on there. And I'm happy to answer any questions. So after listening to this, if you have further questions, you can contact me, go to my website and just simply email me. I read all of my emails and I love <laughs> speaking and connecting with fellow therapists, especially, but anybody who has any questions about these for themselves, for their clients, 
And again, just do, just go online and see what resonates with you and just try some different techniques, try some different things and see what you respond to the best. For everyone, it'll be a little bit different. So just remember that. Thank you. Those are very helpful. And it's so kind of you to offer to reach out to our listeners um, if they contact you. So we really do appreciate that extra effort. See, there's that gratitude. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And thank you to you as well. I really appreciate you having this conversation. Thank you. You have provided us so much useful information. And that kind of segues into the fact that you're coming back later this month and you are actually, it's going to be more of a demonstration. You're going to be talking about the different methods and then demonstrating them um, throughout the course. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you have planned for us? Sure. So as we spoke about several times, breathing techniques, right? These are easy ways to get started. And we take our breath with us wherever we go. So what I love about breathing techniques is not only are they very easy for a variety of clients, for ourselves, they have multiple benefits. That's what I wanted to discuss at our next interview is that I wanted to go through some basic breathing techniques to have a, a little toolbox of breathing mm-hmm. strategies that you could use yourself and you could actually implement in your therapy sessions too, depending on what we want to target. So what we'll do is we'll walk you through what those are, describe them, and and we can practice them during our time together. And I'll also talk about the benefits of each and how they're different. Well, that's great. And I need to add that is going to be a live session. So that's going to be really fun. It'll be fun. We'll be able to have some interaction from the audience and people can ask questions at the end. So I'm really looking forward to that. So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming today. We really appreciate all your expertise and insight. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to being on your show again soon too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.